You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. If you could ask Jesus to fix one problem in your life, and you, you were certain that he was going to fix it, what would it be? Like, would it have to do with a circumstance in your life? Something at work that's not going well, or a financial uh, circumstance? Would it have to do with your finances or your lack of finances? Would it have to do uh, with a relationship uh, in your life? Uh, maybe you're experiencing conflict in a relationship and you just can't seem to solve it. Maybe you're lonely without a relationship. Maybe you're lonely within a relationship, right? and that's a problem. Would your problem have to do with something about yourself, something about the way you look that you just wish was different, or your personality that just plagues you in a certain way and you wish, Jesus, if you would just change that, then life would be all right? Would it have to do with a hardship or a difficulty or a pain or a disability or some form of suffering in your life? And Jesus, if you would just take that away from me, life would be okay and I'd be happy again. What's your greatest problem? Like, that you would take to Jesus because you know Jesus could fix it. And how great would that problem need to be that you were desperate enough to go to him without exhausting all the other means that you might have to fix the problem? Many of you know who uh, Johnny Erickson Tata is. Um, she's a well-known speaker and author. When Johnny was 18 years old, she dove into some shallow water uh, in the Chesapeake Bay, and she broke her neck, uh, and she became a quadriplegic. She's paralyzed from the shoulders down. And she's lived with quadriplegia for 49 years now. Uh, and chronic pain she has lived with for 49 years And she says in the early days of her paralysis, she would lay in her hospital bed and she would struggle to try to make her muscles move and to try to stand up. And she remembers singing a song that she learned as a little child. It was a hymn. And this is the hymn that she would sing. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. And while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. But she said, I never got out of that bed. I never got up and walked. And it felt like, she said, that Jesus had just passed me by. This fall as a church, we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and we've turned there to look at some actual encounters that Jesus has with some some real people there. What does Jesus say in these encounters? What does he do there? And, And we can gain a lot of insight from ourselves. What would Jesus say to us? What is Jesus doing in our own lives? Because the Jesus we worship today is actually the same Jesus we see in the Gospel of Matthew. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we want to encounter this Jesus in a firsthand way. And so we're looking at some firsthand encounters that people had with him to try to learn what it means to relate to Jesus in a real way, not just in theory, not just the idea of Jesus, but the real Jesus. And today's encounter is, as you heard read, with a man who's got a really big problem, a problem bigger than most of us probably can come up with in our own lives. It's a lot like Johnny Erickson Tata's problem. His body is paralyzed. His body does not work the way it's supposed to be. And that encounter is, is in, in Matthew 9. And 
Here's what I want to do. I want to set up the scene, uh, and then I want to look at a, a statement that Jesus makes, and, and then I want to look at a sign that Jesus gives, okay? So the scene, the statement, and the sign. And, and there's mounting tension as the story goes along, right? And we actually need the mounting tension because as the story progresses, we begin to see more and more about Jesus, and we actually begin to see more and more uh, about ourselves. And it's not till the end of the story that Jesus reveals the big idea of what he's trying to teach us anyway. And right at the end, he lets us into his motives and into his mind. All right? So the scene, the statement, and then the sign. All right, let's look at the scene for a moment. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Here's the scene. And getting into a boat... He crossed over. So he crossed over the Sea of Galilee. He's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, and he crosses over to the west side, and he came to his own city. It's the city where he had been living. It's the city of Capernaum. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and Jesus saw their faith. And so Jesus is in his own city. Some people come to him. They bring a paralytic to him uh, lying on a mat uh, or a bed. Now, this is an act of faith on their part. We know this because it says that Jesus saw uh, their faith. They believed that they had a problem, their friend had a problem, and that Jesus could fix their problem. Right? They had faith that he could. And I think the paralytic had faith that he could fix, Jesus could fix his problem. And it's a big, big problem, paralysis. This week I had lunch um, with one of the members of our church named Luke Turry. And many of you know who Luke is. Uh, he's not able to be here uh, today, but, he, but uh, he said I could mention some things from our conversation. Uh, Luke, uh, if you know him, has been bound to a wheelchair uh, since he was two years old. And I asked Luke if he would have lunch and interact with me over this passage because I thought undoubtedly Luke reads this passage differently than I do, right, than most of us do. He, un- he feels this passage with a weight that I don't feel it with. And I was like, hey, can you just help me talk through this, think through it? And one of the things Luke told me this week was about the daily difficulty of paralysis. Like he said he is face-to-face with his limitations all the time, right? Simple tasks in life take him longer than it, than it takes other people, and that just wears him out. It frustrates him. Uh, he, does, he can't interact with the world in ways that he wants to. He's tired way quicker than most other people. See, paralysis, what this man is facing here in Matthew 9, is, is a huge problem, right? It's a life-altering problem. And so this man's friends bring him to Jesus because they believe that Jesus can do something about it. Now, Matthew is not very descriptive about the scene. He gives it like less than two lines in my Bible. He says, some guys brought a paralytic to Jesus on a bed, and Jesus saw their faith. That's all he tells. You know, it's like real vivid, Matthew. Thank you for painting this picture. Well, thankfully, the Gospel of Mark paints a more vivid picture uh, he, he, he gives a more vivid portrayal of what's actually happening here. And, and when we read Mark's gospel, we can begin to see what it means when Jesus saw their faith. Because their faith is in action in real time in a way that's just incredible. Mark tells us that this whole scene took place in a house, the house that Jesus was staying in. Jesus had come back to town, and word had gotten out that Jesus was back in town. And I imagine it's probably late mid-morning, something, after breakfast, Jesus is having, you know, maybe a second cup of coffee, and people start showing up at the house, because they've heard that Jesus is back in town, and they've heard what he's been doing, 
He's been healing people of their diseases. He's been calming storms on the Sea of Galilee. He's been casting demons out of people into herds of pigs. It's a crazy story, if you ever read that one. Uh, He's been doing all kinds of stuff. They've heard what he's been teaching about the kingdom of God, and and they think, maybe this guy has access to the kingdom of God. Let's go see him. And so they start showing up at the house, and the house starts to fill up. And pretty soon, it's full all the, all the way to the back door. Uh, and people are like maybe leaning in the windows uh, to listen. It would be like in here if all the seats were full, and the, the people were sitting and standing in the aisle, and people were sitting on the floor up here, and the balcony was full, and all the way out to the entryway to the door, it's spilling over. And then Jesus begins to preach a sermon down here. And as he does, somewhere during that sermon, these four guys show up at the back door back here. And they're out of breath. They're, they're each holding on to the corner of this little mobile cot, and they're carrying their paralyzed friend. But they're too late, right? They're too late for the meeting, which makes sense because they had to go get their friend and haul him all the way down here. But they can't get through back there. And even if the people wanted to make a path for them to get through, they couldn't because it's just wall-to-wall people. It's just too tight in there. And I just imagine it being hot, people sweating, fan, you know, it gets hot in here sometimes, people fanning themselves, but they don't care because the people just want to hear this superstar, this celebrity from Galilee, one of their own who's doing so much good in the world. But those guys can't get in. Now, what to do? They think, well, we could go home. We try to see Jesus another time, like maybe tomorrow. It wouldn't be that big of a deal to our friend. He's been paralyzed for a long time. Maybe we just come back tomorrow. But they're like, no, let's, let's get our friend in there. They're determined. So they take the outer staircase up onto the, roof, the flat roof of the house, and they begin to peel back the sod uh, and the dirt that s- serves as insulation on the roof tiles. And then they begin to remove tiles uh, of roof. And then Jesus is down here preaching, and all of a sudden this, this hole opens up in the ceiling, right? And dirt and debris starts to fall down around him. He's like in the second point of his sermon. He's given a really good illustration, right? And he's a really captivating preacher because he's Jesus. But even he cannot press on in light of this distraction because everybody's looking up there. And so he just stops and looks up and waits. And these guys lower the guy down and and the paralyzed guy is now laying on the floor uh, in front of Jesus. And then these guys lower themselves down on the rope. They kind of rappel down into the, uh, into the house, right? This is the most amazing church entrance in the history of church, right? <laughs> you will never show up at church better than that, right? Don't even try. This is, this is the way to show up at church. Now, this scene is a picture of what faith looks like, isn't it? Like faith says, I know I've got problems, and I know Jesus can meet my problems, so I've got to get into the presence of Jesus. Like faith has its its number one goal, to get into the presence of Jesus. And so faith here in this story is bold, right? It's creative. It's persistent. It's not worried about being cool. It's not worried about the social consequences, These guys just literally tore a hole in the roof and interrupted this crowded church service, interrupted the Son of God in the middle of a sermon, right? There's nothing cool and level-headed and cerebral about that approach to God. These guys come to God with desperation. Jesus, I need you. 
Jesus, our friend, needs you. And I read that and I think, how often do I come to Jesus with that kind of desperation? Usually I think I just kind of stroll into the presence of Jesus, maintaining my composure and my cool. I think, how, how often do I realize I got to get into the presence of Jesus and it can't wait? But more often than not, I'm like, oh, I'll catch him later. I'll catch him tomorrow. I'll catch him next week. The scene today shows us the faith of these men. They believe they have a problem, and they believe that Jesus can fix it. And so, so after all this goes down, they lower themselves, uh, Jesus speaks. Jesus says something. He makes a statement. So we've set up the scene. Now let's, let's look at the statement of Jesus. Look again at verse 2. Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. And when Jesus saw their faith... He said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And I think the friends at that point are just kind of looking around. They're like, wait, is he talking to somebody else? (laughs) Did he not just see what we just did? Like after all that we just went through, the roof, the ropes, the rappelling down, uh, and and that's all Jesus is going to say to our friend, your sins are forgiven? Surely he's talking to someone else. I mean, Jesus, now a a paralytic is now lying on the floor at your feet. I think it's pretty obvious what we came here for, Jesus, right? We came here so that you would fix our friend's biggest problem. And I think Jesus essentially says to them, your biggest problem is not what you think it is, right? Your biggest problem is not at all what you think it is. Like, apparently this man is paralyzed in ways that he doesn't even understand. Like he has a deeper paralysis than he's even aware of. And really that's true of all of us, isn't it? Like according to Jesus, sin has paralyzed us. Like none of us come into the presence of God standing upright, having it pretty much all together, do we? Sin has laid us out. The weight of sin, the guilt and the shame of sin has immobilized us and it presses down on us so that we can't live as we're supposed to live, as we're created to live, because sin has disabled us. It's made us numb to our creator. This man's greatest problem is not his suffering. It's his sin. And so Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, It's easy when we read this story just to kind of skip over those four words and move on because we've heard that before. But I think when we do that, we miss the weight of what Jesus is saying. We miss the incredible miracle and freedom that Jesus is bestowing on this man in that moment. Because what has sin done in our lives? Look at Isaiah 59, or listen to Isaiah 59. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Ephesians chapter two. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and its thoughts. And so number one, sin has cut us off from God, right? Separated us from God. But number two, sin has debilitated our true self. Like we're not able to live the way we're created to live because sin has so disabled us. Now, 
if that's true, then what does the forgiveness of sins do for us? Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And I love that image. That we, because of the forgiveness of sins, we who were once laid out in paralysis now stand in God's grace totally at peace with God. Ezekiel 36, God says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I will, I will remove your heart of stone, your dead heart, and give you a, a heart of flesh, one that's live, beating, alive to me. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. And again, I love the image, right? That God would take us in the forgiveness of our sins, we who were once paralyzed, and allow us to walk in his ways and to follow him. See, forgiveness takes us from being dead to being alive, right? It takes us from being the enemies of God to being the friends of God. Like, forgiveness of sins is the deepest healing you could ever experience and and, and ever receive, right? Because it gives you access to God. It says God has nothing against you anymore. He holds nothing against you. You can approach him. When I was uh, having lunch with Luke Turry this week, I asked him if there had ever been times over the years when, that had been especially, where Jesus had been especially real to him in his disability, where he just had, had experienced Jesus in a very real way. And he told me about a few times, he told me about two hard seasons in particular in his life, one that he's just come out of this past summer. And he said, during those hard seasons, there were times where I was sensing that God was saying to me, Luke, I'm with you. Luke, I am with you through the difficulty. And Luke, am I enough for you? And for some reason, when Luke said that to me at our lunch this week, it just, it totally hit me like a lightning bolt. I felt like this this text started to come alive in a way that I hadn't seen it before. And it hit me that when Jesus was said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, he wasn't just saying to the man, you have pardon, you get pardon. He was saying, you get God. Right? You get access to God. You don't just get pardon. You get the presence of the living God. God is with you, and you're with him. You're good with him now. You get God. It's the greatest thing Jesus could have given him. This little story, I think, shows us that a man is put right with God through simple faith in Jesus, not because he's done anything for God or will do anything for God, but simply because of the grace of God in his life. That's the forgiveness of sins. I think when I read that, though, and maybe you feel this, sometimes when I read that, this story in the Bible, I think, but, but that's not what he came for. Like, he didn't come for the forgiveness of sins. What, what he came for was to walk again. Right? That's what he really wants. And what he's saying is, Jesus, I, what I really want is for you to really fix my real problem. And I think when I think like that, I am, I'm underestimating the miracle of the forgiveness of sins. What it takes for my sins to be forgiven. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I know you've forgiven my sins. I've heard that before. But what would really be impressive is if you fix some other stuff in my life. Do you ever treat the forgiveness of sins in kind of a ho-hum way? 
kind of like, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. You're kind of bored with it. Sometimes I think we treat the confession of sin and, and, and the assurance of forgiveness or the absolution in our worship service as just sort of a formality that we have to get through, right, to get to the meat of the service, to sing some more songs, to hear a sermon, to have communion. Listen, the forgiveness, the confession of sin and the absolution, it is a soaring pinnacle in our service. It is a time to marvel at the amazing fact that the God of the universe accepts you and accepts me in spite of all the things we just confessed. That God has taken our sin that's separated from him eternally and taken it away in Christ. We ought to marvel at that. Sometimes during the absolution, I see people... uh, standing like this. I think that's the right posture. I think that's during the the assurance of forgiveness, I think we ought to be saying, God, Jesus, I receive this. I need this. Thank you for for, for forgiving my sins, for fixing my biggest problem. The question is, can Jesus actually do that? Like, can he actually go around telling people that their sins are forgiven? Does he have the authority to do that? And it's a fair question, and he anticipates this question. And so what he does in the last part of our story, and we'll end with this, he gives a sign to validate the statement that he just made. So let's look at the sign. Look at verse 3. Matthew 9, verse 3. And behold... Some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. And so Jesus faces some opposition here from the scribes. Uh, The scribes are like the Bible teachers of the day. They're like the seminary professors. Uh, They are trained to protect the honor of God, right? The, The scribes are trained to protect the integrity of the scriptures. They're they're trained to protect the the right application of uh, good theology uh, out of the scriptures. Uh, and, and, and so we ought to cut them a little slack here, actually. They're not just being mean to Jesus, right? They actually think that what Jesus said is dishonoring to God, and so they challenge it. And I think they're right to challenge it. Here's why. Imagine if I was, um, after church today, standing down here talking to Walker, and Kendall walked up to our conversation and just punched Walker in the mouth, Knocked a couple of his teeth out, blood, stuff. Now, at that moment, we've got a real rift in that relationship, don't we? We've got a problem going on in the relationship. This is purely hypothetical, by, by the way. Kendall would never punch Walker, maybe. Um, if I, a few minutes later, said to Kendall, Kendall, I forgive you. You're good now. Don't even worry about it. Walker would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't do that. It's my teeth that are on the floor. You can't forgive him. Only I can forgive him, right? Only the person who sinned against can forgive the sin. That's the point here. Jesus is speaking for God when he says your sins are forgiven. He's actually claiming to be God, and the scribes get it. They understand what he's saying, which is why they oppose him. That's why they step in here. Now look what happens in verse 4 and 5. This is great. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? And then I love this question. 
Such a hard question. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? What do you think? What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? It's kind of a tricky way that Jesus poses the question, and I don't think they know how to answer it. I think it's actually easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say rise and walk because it's not verifiable, right? You can go, all, you go around all day long saying your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, and there's no way to prove whether they are actually forgiven or not. But if you say rise and walk, then that, that brother better get up and walk, right? Or, or, or you're going to immediately be shown to be a fraud. Don't go around saying stuff like that unless you can back it up. Right? It's the reason doctors, typically, when they offer a treatment plan, they, they don't give you a certainty that this is going to work. They might say something like, I'm hopeful that this will work, but they're not going to say this for certain is going to work. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say rise and walk. But what's easier to do? Right? What's harder? Forgiving the sins of the world or healing a paralyzed man? Through the centuries, through history, we, we know that uh, doctors and, uh, and healers have, have brought about all kinds of physical healing, incredible physical healing in the lives of people. There's all sorts of healing, both medical and miraculous, that we can recount in history. But what would it take uh, to bring about the, sins, uh, the forgiveness of sins, the sins of the world? What would it take uh, to pay off the debt that has been rung up by countless sins against an infinitely holy God? Well, it would would take the death of an infinitely holy Savior, right? It would take the cross. And Jesus here, uh, very cryptically, I think, is pointing us to the cross. See, Jesus can heal your body with his power, but he can only forgive your sins by his sacrifice. That's the only way it can happen. The hardest thing that Jesus ever did was not heal someone's diseases. It was not calming the storm. It was not driving out demons. The hardest thing that Jesus ever did was to secure the forgiveness of sins. And so why would I ever treat that lightly? Why would I ever be bored by that? Or think, oh, you know, I've heard that before. It's amazing. But to prove that he has the authority to forgive sins, Jesus gives a sign here. Uh, Look at verse 6. And notice that he forecasts why he's about to heal this guy. Verse 6. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, guys, this is why I'm about to do what I'm about to do, so you know that I have the authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. So this, this healing is a sign. In other words, it it points beyond itself, right, to something greater than itself, and that is that, the, that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Jesus is demonstrating that he has the authority to affect reality by what he says. If Jesus says it, it will be done. And so we come to the end of the story today, and Jesus finally gives the big idea in the healing of the paralytic about what he's been trying to teach us all along, and, that, and here it is. Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who can fix your biggest problem. I'm the only one who has the authority to fix your biggest problem. Because remember the progression of the story? 
we're aware that we have problems, so we bring our problems to Jesus. But then when we get to Jesus, Jesus says, no, your problem is bigger than you think it is. It's way deeper than you think it is. But then Jesus says, but I have the authority to fix that problem. I can give you the deepest healing through the forgiveness of sins. It's actually why Jesus came to earth. Right? We, we celebrated at Christmas. Matthew 1, 21. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why will you call his name Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. It's always been the mission of Jesus. And I love verse 7 in our text today because it says the paralytic rose and he went home. He went home. I love that image. Yes, he literally went home, but you know what? I think he went home with the freedom to be at home with God. He went home with the freedom to be at home with himself. The weight of sin was lifted off him, and he could now be who he was made to be in the presence of others, in the presence of God. What a gift. I think the question for you and me is this. Am I as eager and desperate to have my sins forgiven as that paralyzed man was to be healed of his paralysis? Where I'm just ripping the roof off of the building to get into the presence of Jesus to let his forgiveness wash over me. Am I as desperate for that as this guy was? Do I, do I understand the miracle of that? Johnny Erickson Tata has been paralyzed um, for almost five decades. And here's something amazing she said a couple years ago. I'm blown away by this. She said, when I get to heaven one day and see Jesus, the biggest deal for me is not to get my new body. She says, no, I want a glorified heart. I want a glorified heart that no longer twists the truth. I want a glorified heart that no longer resists God, that no longer looks for an escape, that no longer gets defeated by pain or becomes anxious or worrisome or manipulates my husband with precisely timed phrases. Isn't that incredible? Like coming from someone who's been a quadriplegic for 49 years, what she says is, I want a new heart. Now, she's going to get a new body too. And she's going to dance and run and, and walk in the presence of God for eternity. But I think she understands that her biggest problem is the sin in her heart, right? And, and so she longs for the deepest healing possible, right? the, the healing that can only come by the forgiveness of sins. And she knows that only Jesus can give her that deep cleansing, that deep healing of the forgiveness of sins. Let's thank him for that. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.